Are you looking to sharpen your command and leadership skills? The 2024 Blue Card Hazard Zone Conference is coming back to the Sharonville Convention Center in Cincinnati, Ohio, September 30th through October 4th. Immerse yourself in five days of targeted command education and leadership training at the 2024 Blue Card Hazard Zone Conference. This is your opportunity to recharge your command skills and stay at the forefront of incident command best practices. This year, we've added a certification lab, September 30th through October 2nd. Also added a May Day workshop, October 1st to October 2nd. The general conference is on October 3rd and 4th. The May Day workshop is filling up fast, and our early bird pricing of $415 each for the general conference is a limited time offer. Don't miss out on this opportunity. Register now at HazardZoneBC.com. Hello and welcome to B-Shifter. John Vance here. Josh Bloom and I today will be speaking with Adam Barrowy. Adam is a research engineer for UL's Fire Safety Research Institute. And today we are going to be talking about the science of fire and explosion hazards from lithium-ion batteries. Adam's going to talk about a number of resources that are available for you to train on and pass on to the folks on your department. We will include all of that information in the show notes. So without further ado, let's talk to Adam Barrowy about lithium-ion batteries and fires. All right, Adam Bowery, thanks for being with us today and, and discussing this issue that... Uh, we're seeing more and more uh, with lithium-ion batteries and the fire hazard they pose. Um, so give us a little bit of background on where we are now as compared to, you know, our, our world before lithium-ion batteries and, and this progression that we've seen with these fires that are being caused and other hazardous conditions being caused by the batteries. Sure. Um yeah, it's uh, it's it's timely that you uh, that you asked that question because um, I was actually just at the the Washington D.C. car show yesterday. I was I was legitimately working, I swear. Um, and what I was doing there was trying to figure out you know how many EVs are out and how they're being built and all that. What I didn't anticipate was you know uh, at this car show seeing um, a battery powered bus battery-powered wheelchair, battery-powered concept cars. Uh, there was a hovercraft there that was battery-powered um, motorcycles. I mean, it was really a, a showcase of the technology of batteries that was not advertised. This was just supposed to be a car show. But it really, under one roof, showed us how far batteries have gone. And, you know, as compared to how sort of how it was before we started seeing so much batteries in everything, um, you know, the, the closest thing I would equate it to was you know, the, the push of putting polyurethane foam in everything. Polyurethane foam changed the way home fires burn. It changed the timeline for people to get out, changed the timeline for the fire service to, to respond. And it, as we know, it changed fire dynamics and, you know, how fires respond to ventilation. So I, I see it as kind of like the second coming of polyurethane foam in terms of creating hazard because, you know, where you used to have things with cords, now, um, 
you know, you've got lithium ion batteries in your drills at home, they're in your power banks. Um, and so I don't necessarily see this as some like overnight change in the nightmare. It's just something to be aware of that now there's a new hazard and it grows with scale. So, uh, you know, a portable power tool is going to have some amount of risk to it, but that risk is going to potentially change, get bigger as you go towards bigger, you know, um, do-it-yourself power walls in someone's garage. It's essentially made out of the same batteries that you have in a power tool. Um, so th- that's how I see this shift. And, and, and basically, if something consumes power now, there's there's going to be a, a lot of interest in people putting on lithium-ion batteries in it. So um, I don't want to get too far ahead of what you guys want to talk about, but I do see this as let's not just look at EVs, let's not just look at energy storage, but let's understand the batteries themselves so you, you're equipped to respond to them wherever you find them. So you guys have done uh, some work here in the last year. I know you were at FDNY and they did a symposium there on um, some of the fires that they'd had and the batteries and, you know, 300 and some people there. And, you know, one of our things is, is just trying to get this out there and connecting the people of, you know, some of the things you mentioned that it's, it's not like, Oh my God, like world's coming to an end, but it's something that we have to understand and that it's going to affect fire dynamics. And what does that really look like? And I guess, you know, as more time goes by and you guys do more and more research, uh, how's that impacting like life safety profile? And I think it brings a whole new level to, you know, the whole close before you doze thing of being behind the door. But, you know, when you watch some of the videos of the, of the e-bike that's on the, on the program that you guys just released on January 19th, I want to make sure everybody's aware of that. Cause I think it's a phenomenal thing that you guys pushed out, which is what really triggered us to connect with you about, about right. what you guys are doing with that. But, uh, you know, it, it it appears that that ten by twelve rumor, however however big it is, in seconds, you know, goes from nothing to it, it's full and um, like a hostile fire environment. So you know that's going to impact you know a whole lot of our decision making, which which comes back to the program that we do with you know the strategic decision making model. And I think the lithium ion battery piece is is a critical factor that you know everybody on the fire ground is going to have to start thinking about when you pull up, like what's going on there. And you mentioned the, you know, a cell phone or a battery or a computer or whatever. And it just keeps triggering in my mind about uh, the, when they open that overhead compartment on that airplane and that computer's off. It's like, wow, that's something. And uh, in December we had Shane Ray here from the national fire sprinkler association. He said, he said, I wonder how long it'll be before somebody has some kind of contraption to put on an airplane that you could put a phone computer, you know, one of these small devices in because, you have to be able to contain it somehow. And it's like, well, it's just a different thing, right? So we just have to think about it different. And one of our, our, our visions with and blue card is and B shifter is, is we want to be on the forefront of things, right? We want to give people the tools and uh, we don't want somebody to say, man, I wish I knew that if, if somebody knows it, we want everybody to know it. Um, So I think that's just a piece of it. And you talked about the whole scale thing. Like, you know, you think about that e-bike and and that's in the program that you guys put together of that single room. But then I think about a, Tesla car sitting in a, you know, two car garage in a 5,000 square foot house. And what does that look like? And what is that going to do? And, and not to mention the, you know, just the runaway part of it, but you know, the, some of that violent explosion stuff that I've seen in some of the videos and stuff. And it's like, what does that do? And that that's going to create a whole nother thing when it blows the garage door out or blows a window out or, you know, what is, so what does that do to the entire fire environment? So I think there's a lot of stuff that we can, that we can talk about. And again, not to get ahead of <laughs> where we want to go with this, but <laughs> right. I just wanted to, so that I think we're all on the same page of like, what are we really doing with this and what does it look like? And 
you know, kind of where's it going? So, well, I, I think, I think, um, you know, I, I understand how it's, it's so hard to wrap it all up in, in the one quick comment or one quick question. Um, that, that's why uh, just before that, that symposium in, in New York city, um, you know, I talked to, to Dan Machkowski in the office here and he, he kind of asked me to provide um, an overview on, on sort of the science of, of what's going on with batteries. Um, that, that really set the stage, I think, for the approach that, that we want to take from here on out. Um, that, that course that you mentioned we released is one of the ways that we're trying to address all the battery problems. So it doesn't tell you how to put out an EV fire. It's not going to tell you how to approach an energy storage system that's had thermal runaway. But the idea is if you're going to be potentially, uh, you know, tasked with opening that overhead compartment in the plane, there's, there's some gases inside there, just knowing what it means for that to be there. So you can start making decisions based on what you know about the hazards. Um, to give you maybe a different example, if your cell phone started smoking on your desktop, you might throw it in your trash can and fill it full of water. That's easy, but you can't do that to an EV and you can't do that to the system that they had in Surprise, Arizona that, that exploded in 2019. A lot of it is what's around the battery affects what, what tactic you can employ. We don't know immediately what those tactics are. So we're going to start taking a look this year at what we can do with EV, what, what approaches might you take with the tools you have, um, and then start answering those questions specifically about EV. But it's there's not like a silver bullet for batteries. It's going to depend on, on all the specifics of, of however it's involved in the incident. Well, let's start with the smaller items first, uh, where we're seeing the runaway happen because of either improper charging or um, people have made modifications to some of these scooters because they want to soup them up. And we're seeing those in multifamily dwellings, 20 floors up in urban areas. Yep. What, what is causing that? Let's, let's dig into a little bit of what's causing that. And then um, maybe if we can get into a little bit of how do we address those types of issues. Let's take a quick break. Enhance fire ground leadership with our critical thinking and strategic decision-making class designed to strengthen incident command through the functions of command and foster a safer, more effective decision-making process for fire service professionals. The only critical thinking and strategic decision-making class at the Allen V. Brunacini Command Training Center in Phoenix, Arizona is May 22nd and 23rd. Sign up at bshifter.com. Sure. Um, so, I mean, what, what's causing that? Like, why are you seeing it in e-mobility and you're not seeing it in EV, for example? And if, if you look at how they've developed both products, EV, they're doing crash testing and there's, there's expectations for the safety performance of an electric vehicle. So there's, there's engineers and scientists working to make those safer and going through all these different failure scenarios. The battery packs, especially like the ones that we bought for when we ran some, uh, you know, demonstrations this fall that you referred to, um, those are essentially just lithium-ion batteries jammed as tight as you can get them into a battery pack. There's little to no safety designed to those at all. So if one cell in that battery pack goes in a thermal runaway, that could very likely, and, and as we showed you, it did run through 
the whole battery pack and it does it very quickly. Uh, there are safer versions. So there are big companies and uh, I won't point me out to look like I'm playing favorites, but you know, you could go with a big reputable brand that's done voluntary safety testing, but that makes it more expensive. And so it comes down, frankly, to, to socioeconomics as well. There are people in New York City using these vehicles to do their day jobs. They're making an income off it. Now that they're dependent on it, they can't very well just say, well, I'm going to quit using this dangerous one because I can't afford the expensive one. Um, so it, it comes down to making ends meet. So that's why they're still buying them. They're still modifying them so they can go faster, um, so they can charge them faster. And oftentimes, you know, you're seeing uh, whole rooms that people are, you know, doing this battery swapping where they're taking a dead one and charging a fee and giving a fresh one, you know, to whoever's using them. And so all of those contribute to, okay, well, they were unsafe to begin with. Now you're modifying and pushing them harder and you're, you're accumulating these devices all under, you know, in one room or under one roof. So the more of them you have, the more likely you are to have some kind of incident. Um, and, you know, start, start lumping all those things together and it's, it's going to increase the severity uh, or I should say that the likelihood you're going to have an incident. And then the, of course, the severity is high rise is going to be a lot worse condition than say out in the middle of the street, you know? Um, so what, what can we do about it? I think I'll let you come back to that because I think you had a direction you wanted to go. You know, I think there's two ways that we might be able to think about this. Number one is prevention. You know, what, what do we work on with prevention? How can we educate the public on that when we're doing our public education uh, about the modification storage, where you charge, how you charge? So let's start there and then we'll get into sure. mitigation. So there is definitely a public education piece. As you know, that that's kind of one part of the pie. I like seeing all the parts of the pie. You, know, you could have detection, fire detection, alarm. That's going to give people time to get out. I know there's a different that's a different question altogether, but I think. There's other than news headlines uh, coming out and saying that there's a lot of fires in New York City. You know, the, the mentality we're always fighting is, well, that's not going to happen to me. Um, I think we need to break through that a little bit better by showing, you know, some of the some of the demonstrations we've done to, to look up close and say, look, you might not think this is going to happen to you. But if you do these things, your living room may go from fine to potentially uh, life threatening conditions inside 30 seconds. Um, that's, that's a faster development of, of, uh, hazardous conditions than just about anything else that can go in your home and, and push that out to the public. That's, that's absolutely going to help. Um, and then I think, uh, some other efforts, um, on, on the building side, which I've heard proposed, I haven't seen yet, but, uh, for example, uh, a, um, a, a, a journalist asked me the other day, about this concept an architect came up with, which is essentially almost like an area of refuge, but the e-bikes go in that for charging. It's kind of like a reverse area of refuge. Um, and the idea is that in some, in some public housing, some new public housing, they would have a, a concrete block room, high fire resistance and uh, high flow sprinklers to try to control the hazard, which I do think is a step in the right direction. Um, but until we really know you know, no by test that sprinklers are going to control the hazard and binning them all up uh, in one room doesn't just put all the fuel in one spot. And as we know, with some of the gas that comes out, you know, potentially create a, an explosion hazard. 
I think that explosion hazard's probably not uh, going to be out of control in a, in a situation like that. But again, we don't have that data, so we need to take a look. So when you're looking at, you know, between the mobility scooter type thing, we mentioned power tools. Um, you know, right now I have a lawnmower and a snowblower that are both powered by lithium ion batteries. Where, where are we seeing the threat? What, what, what do we have to look out for in our own homes right now? Or if we're out doing inspections or we're advising the public, what, what do we tell them about this? The, the, the biggest threat, frankly, right now is sort of with the, I don't know whether to call them generic or sort of off-brand e-mobility devices, but that's that's where we're seeing the highest incidence of uh, thermal runaways or, or battery fires. The and that that that's just what I'm telling you from impressions that we're getting from people contacting us and from reading the news. One of the challenges, as I'm sure you're already aware, Enfers doesn't have you know a box where you can say, well, this was. Uh, a power tool pack or an e-mobility device or a, or a, uh, uh, you know, an electric vehicle, there's just no way to capture that. So with the rate of incidents, we know of, of uh, I think, some incidents where it's being blamed on batteries and maybe the battery got burned up in the normal fire or where uh, the batteries are just being missed. Uh, I, I know when we talked to FDNY a few months back, uh, once they started recognizing that batteries could be the cause of the fire, their number of incidents jumped way up because they started finding batteries burned up in those fires. So, um, yeah, that, that's been, that's been a big part of the challenge. And then if we do have, uh, an incident where the battery is involved, uh, how do we, how do we get toward mitigation, not only extinguishing that, but, uh, is there anything we should be doing to report it? So that information is collected by you guys, because I know that, uh, you know, FSRI is going to want to know about, these instances, if we're not getting the information through infers, uh, we don't collect that data. At least uh, we're not talking about doing that right now. I do have a colleague who works back in UL Chicago, um, and she's she's created a database. Uh, her name is Veronica Kimmerly. She's creating a database of all the different battery failure incidents she can find globally, and she's coming up with some some fascinating numbers, um, but. For consumer products, I know that you can submit data to the Consumer Product Safety Commission, and uh, CPSC has got some pressure, and uh, I know that they're taking a harder look at e-mobility devices, but um, I I can't speak on their behalf. I would just, if you suspect it's got a battery incident uh, you know, related to it, submit it to them. And then extinguishment and, and uh, dealing with the hazard once it's, once it's ran away and ignited. Well, if it's for small devices, um, I think there's there's no one better right now than FDNY to look to uh, for some guidance on how to deal with those. So uh, I'll refer you over to them. I'm not sure if they uh, published their SOP for lithium-ion battery incidents, uh, but they've got their own internal guidance now on what to do with suspect uh, products and Essentially, I, I, I think they've got, uh, I don't want to speak too carefully about it because I haven't memorized it, um, but anything that's been heat impacted at this point. So if, they're, if it's gone into thermal runaway or whether or not it has, if it looks suspect, they're breaking it down and packaging it uh, inside the what they call overpack. So there's, a, there's like a non-combustible material they put inside a drum and they layer it all up. So basically, if it does go into thermal runaway, it's contained. 
uh, operationally, uh, they have more specific guidance because I know that they're concerned with uh, like a reignition. You wouldn't want to take it down a stairwell, for example, or down an elevator. Um, there has been some incidents globally where that's occurred, and that's obviously a a, a pretty big concern. Um, but uh, I, I'll I'll point you to their SOP. I can email it to you and hopefully get it maybe linked to your show. Yeah, we'll include that SOP in the show notes and mm-hmm. uh, let everybody know what that is. So we've seen in in recent month, two months, uh, some apparatus fires, and the, they're blaming them on charging banks in the apparatus. Okay. So that that's off. That's just a whole other thing, right? So it's it's really convenient to have, you know whatever tool being battery powered and you don't have to connect it to a pump and hydraulic and all of that. But, um, have you guys, have you guys looked into any of those at all? Is it, is it, is it, was the battery or was the battery damaged maybe? And then, or was it, does anybody, has anybody looked into that? Do you know, or have you guys done anything with that? Uh, I, I haven't heard whether anyone looked into that, but I mean, that, that's where I sort of see this as being, that's one of the, the many, many challenges we're going to have to deal with. Um, now, I will say that uh, one of the challenges is going to be you're going to want to leave them on charge all the time. So you might build that charging system into your truck. So it's beautiful. It's ready to go uh, when it comes time to pull that tool off. Uh, But one of the things we did back in the lab in Chicago was we put everything kind of separated from all the rest of our equipment uh, and put it on a, on a timed charging circuit. So it would fill all the way up, you know, when we depleted it, and then it would just get a boost charge every once in a while. It's not something I'm, I'm recommending as the solution, but in our own backyard, that's how we managed to control the risk. We said, let's make sure it only charges when we know there's going to be people right here next to it. And it's just charging for a short time every day. Um, and I don't know that you can apply that to an apparatus, but that's how we dealt with our similar problem. Yeah, and then the same thing, I guess, on the tools as we've seen. In, in the last few months, we've seen where um, some extrication equipment, I guess, uh, where the battery got punctured in some way, shape, or form. And mm-hmm. it was an interesting thing that uh, once that battery went into runaway, basically, and it, it started off gassing and, and caught fire, you know, the tool quits mm-hmm. working. Well, <clears throat> it's just another thing in, in our industry, you know, for us to talk about and share with everybody on here is like, if you got a, if you got a, some kind of battery powered Ram in a door and yep. it gets punctured and that thing starts to run away. And now the tool's not going to work. Well, you still got a victim inside there. So it's a whole nother consideration of how you're going to deal with that. And what does it look like? So I think it's something that we have to, we have to understand the risk associated with the tools that we're using and where we're, where we're using them. And if that happens, like, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a smaller battery, but it's still going to create a pretty significant event at, at a car so it's at a car with a victim that's got, you know, flammable materials inside of it. So it, I think it's a whole other piece that our industry is going to have to think about of how do we, I mean, we can't plan for every little thing, but I mean, it's happened several times now we've seen it. So it's like, it's bound to happen because it's not a sterile yep. environment. And it's like, how, how could we control that, extinguish that? Like, what's the best thing to do with it? And I don't know if there's a for sure answer yet, but <laughs> Yeah, I, I can say I haven't looked into that specific issue, but it, it's it's like any other tool. You know, you, what if, what if you're up on the roof and your saw dies and it will not start again? Then what do you do? There's there's always going to be some scenarios to plan for. And, and to get back to your earlier question, 
Yeah, actually, I was just struggling to recall it for a second, but um, you know, with smaller devices, some of I think some of the issues to be very concerned about, more specific to them, is um, the battery packs in something like a consumer product aren't necessarily built to to like really robustly hold those cells in. So if you watch uh, some hoverboard videos, you might see cells getting thrown out. I mean, they're a secondary ignition source, but if some cells get thrown out, but they haven't gone into thermal runaway yet, and now you start, say, pulling ceilings down, they're going to get buried. And, and if they are heat impacted in a way where they're susceptible to go to thermal runaway later, of course, that's a, a significant concern about rekindle. But what's worse now is that you may not be there when the rekindle occurs if you don't find all these batteries, and now you pull the ceiling down, so now your structure is exposed. So that secondary fire could potentially be a bigger hazard than the first. And, you know, it's, it's frankly, it's an unenviable task to try to go find all these things. I know, uh, you know, again, coming back to that event we had with FDNY in September, they were showing, you know, the, the labor involved where they've got this battery pack and they go looking for the three missing cells in the pile of junk that's left behind from overhaul. And, and um, there's, there's no good answer for that, but I think that, just knowing that you got to account for everything is, is going to be important in preventing the next, you know, rekindle. So graduating from some of those smaller batteries, then how much are we seeing this in large electric vehicles or uh, power banks? I mean, we're, we're seeing RVs now where they eliminate the generator and it's just all lithium ion pow- uh, battery banks and, uh, you know, solar charging systems. Are, are we seeing anything with those? And do we have those same concerns? Because that's going to be much bigger, a much bigger fire problem than just yep. a small battery. Well, um, you know, again, everything's going to be underreported because, you know, if, if a homeowner has one of these little, uh, I think sometimes they call them solar generators or whatever. If that bursts into flames at your campsite and you're lucky enough that none of your stuff gets destroyed, you're going to be bummed out and probably throw it in the trash and maybe not even ever report that. So there's there's not a good system for us to know how much it's happening. Um, now I also haven't heard of it too much. There is, there was a CPSC recall on a similar type, you know, sort of portable power bank for the, the scale you'd use to power your uh, camper for a little while. Um, so there, there's not, there's not too many of those EV. We know a lot better about, again, it's still not, it's still not uh, super robust, but the nice part, is that just about every time a Tesla catches on fire, it's sensational right now. So you hear about it in the news. That being said, there's a group out of Australia. I believe they're called EV Fire Safe, and uh, it's gonna it's gonna show that I'm not doing my homework. But I think they put out their report last week, and they basically have their staff digging as hard as they can to, to figure out how many EV fires that there have been worldwide. Um, I want to say right now. They set a number less than 500, um, just from memory. Again, it's not like a rash of EV fires. There's now uh, millions on the road, and so that failure rate's pretty low. But um, you know, I think as you may have seen in some of our research that we started doing some preliminary releases on, uh, once you start getting into battery packs, sort of at this maybe a little above the scale of this portable power bank and getting towards EV. Now we're starting to think, well, is that battery pack big enough to start changing fire dynamics for 
in a residential structure. So if you've got an EV on fire inside a garage in a closed door and that fire goes vent limited and you've got batteries going in thermal runaway, putting flammable gas in, and this fire doesn't have enough oxygen to burn, are we going to see a change in the way that that fire behaves when first responders show up and start making entry and doing what they anticipate for a normal structure fire? Um, and so some of our preliminary work shows that, yeah, things can be different. And so we want to understand, well, what can you tell if there's batteries involved in that type of fire? And if they are involved, what do you need to know so you can make the right tactical decisions uh, and even be safe during your size up? You know, as as we're getting more and more electric and, and you know, uh, we're, we're hearing about the possibility of airplanes and other vehicles that are powered this way. What uh, do you know of anything being done um, other than they are higher end? They're going to get tested um, to try to make those systems safe as we expand it in transportation. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm going to loop back on my earlier answer a little bit. I mean, the, the auto industry has all of their crash taste, uh, crash tests. I've run a couple of the it's it's been about five or six years, but I ran a couple of the auto industry fire tests and. Uh, frankly, they were pretty rigorous. I mean, we were uh, we were putting a vehicle battery pack above a, a flammable liquids fire. That's it's the the rules. It's got to be basically bigger than uh, the battery pack on all on all sides by one to two feet. You end up with a with a flame that's about fifteen to twenty feet tall. So it is a mean you know big exposure. It's got to sit there for a couple minutes and then you pull it out. And, you know, basically has to not go into thermal runaway. So they're, they're really abusing those battery packs. Um, but if you take that out and say, well, that's great. It passed all the safety standards, but it goes down the road. It hits a uh, raised manhole cover, and then it goes to a fly-by-night mechanic and, you know, sits in their, sits in their shop, and they're going to do whatever to it. They've never seen it before, but they say, I can fix that. That's already happened. There's been an incident with that. It didn't turn out too bad, but I mean, we, we can say, great, all your safety standards. Now, the worst scenario happens. What happens with the, the development of that, those conditions? Um, you know, that, that's sort of where our research is coming in. And thermal runaway is different than, because I, I've, I've had some hybrid vehicles that we've responded on that the vehicle catches on fire because the house is on fire. And then once the lithium ion battery pack or batteries um, get involved, it, it, the fire grows and, and it's difficult to extinguish. So those are two different things that we're talking about here, right? Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> um, the auto communication of, of being close to a combustible and then the battery catching on fire versus thermal runaway. So maybe yeah. you could help us I, you know, dig down into that a little bit more and explain that. Yeah. Sure. Well, actually, uh, you, the, the timing on that question is pretty good, too, because um, the there was a paper that came out of uh, the, a lab in Korea. And so what they did, it's it's Korean cars, so they're a bit smaller. But if you look at what a car is, is an electric vehicle, you've got basically a cabin full of flammable interior finish, and then you got a battery pack on the bottom where your fuel tank would go. Uh, and so... They separated it out in a couple tests where they burned just the battery and they burned just the cabin. They also burned a couple internal combustion engine cars. What they found was basically there wasn't much difference in the size of the fire, but the the 
cars with the battery packs, those fires grew a little faster. So once the thermal runaway got going in the battery, it lit up the inside of the uh, car and, you know, sort of pushed it faster than just igniting the, the surface mat, um, material just by itself. So they could potentially burn a little bit faster, but essentially they were saying the fire size is going to be about the same. Now, as I think you just alluded to, one of the big differences is going to be you could get that cabin fire out and likely very successfully, just like you would with, you know, the cars we've had for decades. But getting water into that battery pack or to that battery pack is going to be a significant challenge because the, those manufacturers, of course, don't want water inside that battery pack as it goes down the road. So, you know, getting the water where it matters is going to be a real challenge. And I'm sure you're seeing some creative approaches. Um, I mean, I love the ingenuity of the fire service and how we got a problem. Let's go out in the parking lot and figure it out right now. Um, but I think that uh, even that level of ingenuity is going to be really challenged by the construction of the cars. When we're seeing 25,000 gallons of water being put on a Tesla that's on fire, um, is it because then the water isn't getting to where it needs to be or is it because of the stored energy? It, it's very likely because the water's not getting where it needs to be. Uh, there's a, I mean, that those battery pack enclosures tend to be very, very robust steel. And so from, from some commercial testing experience on, on like the stationary energy storage systems, the big containerized ones, I can tell you that some manufacturers have started getting wise uh, to their early test results from, from five, six years ago. And now they're incorporating technologies that are getting extinguishing agents in where the batteries are. And that's been demonstrated to be effective. So if you can if you can get a purchase on those batteries, and I think that's why you're seeing those you know sort of piercing nozzle type approaches, you can get the water in, you can start taking the heat away. But uh, 25, 30,000 gallons of water is likely being thrown at the battery. Like if it, um, Tesla said at the FDNY symposium that they've got you know banks or modules of batteries inside that battery pack. And so when one goes up, if you were to try to throw water at that and pull, pull as much heat as you can out and sort of delay it and slow it down, well, it's going to take time to get to the next one. That's going to go up again. So if you keep responding and throwing water at this thing every time it goes up, you're going to end up at 20, 25, 30,000 gallons of water. So um, I, I don't want to sound like I'm saying I have the answer right now, but we do want to, in our in our research this year, take a look at well, if you throw all that water at it, what's the maximum possible benefit you can hope to achieve? I mean, can you do it so much that you that you stop the battery from going into the runaway? And maybe now you've got this stranded energy situation to deal with, or you know, there's there's a growing um, you know uh, a suggestion that I'm seeing on some some fire service channels that says, well, let it burn, but of course. You know, let it burn is not going to work everywhere. It won't work inside a tunnel. It's not going to work inside a parking garage. Um, so, you know, what are the limitations of let it burn? And what's what's in the middle of the road? If you throw water at the cabin fire and let the battery burn out, what do we get out of that scenario? The, the challenge is either whoever has done any testing can't release that data because it's proprietary to a manufacturer or the test data is just not available. So that, that's what we want to do is start saying, Look, we've done this, we've made the measurements, and here is our data, and here are some conclusions. We can say this is based on a test. We've, we've seen it, we've done it live, and um, 
let's let's get you some decision aids based on that data. So what tactical considerations should we have as incident commanders, firefighters, we're pulling up, we suspect this. What what should be going through our heads when we when we think that the lithium ion battery might be involved? Uh, you mean specific to electric vehicles or just kind of anything? Just kind of anything, you know. And I, I, what I'm talking about is in the residential setting when when we when we possibly have this inside single family residence or an apartment building, mm-hmm. th- those kind of things first, and then then you know vehicles that are outside pose a different kind of risk and a, and a less less sure. risk. So, um, well, good. So, and again, I'm going to point back to our course a little bit because we try to point at some of the things that are going to be common across all different types of batteries. So um, if I just rattle, you know, shoot from the hip, um, the first thing I'd be considering is if, if there are batteries involved, that gas is potentially, uh, Potentially flammable. So if, if you can see like the conditions that surprise Arizona, if you can see this kind of neutral, you know, hanging white cloud, that is potentially a flammable off gas from batteries. So, you know, you sort of need to treat that almost like a gas leak. So I'd assume it's ignitable. I'd assume that there could be more coming because if you watch any different number of lithium ion battery products go through thermal runaway, as they go from cell to cell, it can take a little time. So if something has already gone to thermal runaway, there could be some more. It may not be done yet. So it could be this ongoing hazard. Um, in, in some instances, as the batteries get bigger, there's uh, elements inside that contain fluoride. So if you're very close to the source of that smoke, uh, hydrogen fluoride gas could be a, you know, an obvious respiratory hazard. So I mean, everything that you use already for, for PPE uh, with regards to smoke exposure, you know, that's, that's going to be your recommendation. Um, for residential, I mean, if there's active fire and the batteries involved, that's what we're in the middle of figuring out right now. We did see an increase in flammability in the smoke. So when we made changes in ventilation, uh, in one case, we went from essentially no fire in a compartment to roll over and flash over within 30 seconds. So, I mean, that's, that's a lot of batteries going. That could be like a, uh, you know, full battery pack from a residential energy storage kind of all built up in one room, but just kind of be aware that some of those dynamics can change uh, and they can happen pretty quickly. So with your course, if you, if you can give the elevator speech on your course, what we want to direct people there, we're going to offer the link to the course uh, in the show notes sure and everything. So what, what are they going to get out of the course and, and why should we point them that way uh, as sure. firefighters? Well, the, the, the objective with that is just to give everyone basically the same baseline. So, so we're all talking about the same thing. Uh, so we, we start off with how are cells constructed? What are they made out of? Because you're going to need to know, oh, okay, well, it's, it's made all these components. It's plastics, it's electrolyte, which is hydrocarbons, you know, chemicals sort of similar to gasoline. Um, and then what, what makes those go into, so what is thermal runaway and then what can make them go into thermal runaway? Cause we all know if you stab one with a nail or throw it in a fire, it can go into thermal runaway, but there are some other causes to know of. So you're aware of potentially what can make them go. Um, and then we start talking about what it means when you have thermal runaway propagation. So what that is, how it moves through a battery pack and how that can change the scale of your hazard. 
So how that can go from essentially, well, if your cell phone you know, catches on fire on your desk, that's just a small fire in your desk. But if it can release enough gas to create an explosion hazard in a confined space, that's another hazard altogether. So it's going to equip you with these tools to know what's driving the hazard. And then a, a good portion of the class is uh, how, do, how do you get to, to knowing what hazards are possible? And it's all about considering the size of the battery pack and whatever space it's in. So uh, is it out in the open? Is it inside uh, uh, like a mechanical closet? Is it inside a, its own enclosure? And we get to how you can get to fire and explosion hazards from those sort of the, those building blocks early on. A big thing you said that, that, that a lot of people are trying to figure out is the how are we putting 20,000, 25,000, 30,000 gallons of water on these fires? And <clears throat> they're putting water on the that that flammable gas, right? That that seems like what they're really putting water on because they're not getting to the seat of the fire, which yeah. is yeah. the problem. So, I mean, I think that w- when you said that, the light bulb's like, uh, <clears throat> it's not that they're not, well, the, yeah, they're not going out. They're difficult to put out. But the problem is we're not getting water where we really need to get the water. And that's going to continue to be a problem because of, you know, that whole path you went down. So, you know, some light bulbs, you know, came on for me when we were going through this, like, yeah, yeah. protecting them to keep stuff so from happening. And that's also making it hard for us to put the fire out though. So. I mean, there's a couple examples I, that I could give you, you know, um, one of the first energy storage systems that, uh, that we ever tested in the lab you know, there's generally not too many surprises in the, in the fire lab uh, at UL. You know, it's we might see a big fire, but usually we're expecting it. And, you know, very early in energy storage system fires, uh, there was an incident where we had uh, a fire start. And, you know, we're saying, OK, great, this is part of the test. And then it started getting bigger than we can really have in that lab. I mean, every lab's got its limits. Uh, the lab started heating up. We started backing up our exhaust system. So we decided to terminate the test. And, you know, um, much to our surprise, we really had some difficulty terminating that test. So that, that customer was um, pretty apprehensive with me when I said, I want to deploy two hand lines pre-charged before the test. They said, you're not going to need that. I said, yeah, but just in case, I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to pull them out while this thing's on fire. And so we ended up grabbing both. Uh, both inch and a half hand lines and uh, uh, the technician I was working with and I absolutely no purchase on the fire whatsoever. We were basically cooling the gas, as you put it, that was coming out. And that was beneficial to do in that instance, because we weren't, you know, setting a a test wall on fire and we were kind of slowing, slowing the rate it moved through the equipment down. But the, the stuff that was on the parts that were on fire, we would just, were not extinguishing them. And we got a little bit better, like there was a, um, a couple plugs that had, had sort of blown out uh, during the fire. And that allowed us to sort of, you know, to, to um, go to just basically a straight stream and try to bank it into those plug holes. That got a little better, but it didn't do the full job. And so you're 25 and 30,000 gallons of water. Exactly right. It's coming from not being able to get the water where it needs to go. Um, and, and, and I think you've seen, uh, they, they tend to have maybe a different approach in Europe. They're, they're, they've been a little bit more accepting of just dunking the EVs and tanks. I'm not saying that that's the way, but you've seen it successful. I mean, there was a, there was a BMW incident where they just said, you know what, throw it in the dumpster, fill it halfway full of water. 
you only have to have it come up above the battery pack. Um, and I know that there's a couple of manufacturers that don't like that approach, but resource wise, if you can get it there, that gets the battery at least up underwater. No hose stream is going to beat that, you know? We have some technology now uh, where we are um, putting essentially a blanket over a car uh, for car fires. Does that methodology work at all when we're dealing with uh, stored energy uh, on a battery pack and in a vehicle? Not, not really. I mean, if you look at the, 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 the physics and the heat transfer of why, you're essentially going to be smothering the cabin fire and really not taking any heat away from that battery pack. So uh, I was actually just at the FDSOA um, last week, and we had some discussion of that there. It, it's not to say there's going to be no benefits. So there's, you know, if there's jets of fire coming out uh, from the battery and you get this blanket over that and that stops those jets, that may be part of exposure control. Uh, and then you're eliminating this, this idea of throwing tons and tons of water at it. Uh, but that's not going to do anything to, to mitigate what's going on with the battery. Well, is there anything else you'd like everyone to know that uh, we didn't cover today? Um, sure. I mean, just stay, stay tuned. I think there's a, there's a lot of people working very hard on all the different types of batteries. Now, I mean, we, we didn't even get into it, but that, that, uh, that early on in the show, you, 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 um, you mentioned having a way to control personal electronic device fires. And so there's some folks at, uh, at UL who created a standard for these bags that you can carry on planes to throw them in. Now, the challenge is who's going to put the glove on, go grab it and get it in the bag. But there's people working on that problem at FSRI. We're sort of continuing what we've done with stationary energy storage. Uh, and then this year we're looking a lot harder at e-mobility uh, and electric vehicles. Um, but, you know, really there's, there's this technology has developed so fast that, we're all sort of uh, chasing the answers now and we're going to be getting it out as, as quickly as we can, but um, yeah, stay tuned to uh, uh, FSRI, NFPA and you know, the, the, the other fire research organizations for answers. All right, Adam, thank you so much for being here with us today on B shifter. Thanks very much for having me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. That wraps up this P shifter. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Adam Barraway from UL's Fire Safety Research Institute and all his knowledge on lithium ion batteries. If you care to learn more, that information is in the show notes, as well as our contact information, links to all of the latest workshops and the Hazard Zone Conference coming up here in 2023. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a friend and subscribe. Until next time, thanks so much for listening to B-Shifter.